Turn with me in your Bible this morning to Genesis chapter 50. We're going to read from verse 15 right through to verse 21. Genesis chapter 50. We'll read from verse 15. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Genesis chapter 15, sorry, Genesis 50, verse 15. Let's hear God's word. Reading from the authorized version. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us of all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin. For they did the evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for I, for am I in the place of God. But as for you, ye thought evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now therefore fear ye not. I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now for a few minutes, let me just speak to the boys and girls who are here. And I want to read one verse of scripture to them. And this verse is taken from Song of Solomon. It's in chapter 4 and it's in verse 2. And it says this. Now listen carefully, boys and girls and young people. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn, which came up from the washing. Whereof every one bear twins, and none is barren among them. Now, I want you to think of those words today. Their teeth are like a flock of sheep. Now, why do I reference that? I reference that for this reason, because I've got something in the bag that reminds us of a man that we'll call the toothpaste man. And if you look, it says, Colgate total whitening toothpaste. And then I've got another thing here. This is Colgate Cool Mint Mouthwash. Now, you're familiar, something you do every morning, every night before you go to bed, you brush your teeth. And we would encourage you, if you want to have healthy teeth, then you've got to brush your teeth and you can also use this uh, special um, 
uh, mouthwash uh, and it leaves your mouth very, very refreshing. Now, there's 52 references in the Bible, 46 to the word teeth and six to the word tooth. So we're all familiar that we have, each of us, a set of teeth, upper and lower teeth. All right? Now, I want you to think of the name here on this toothpaste. It's called Colgate. And this also says Colgate. You see, this takes us away back to a man called William Colgate. And William Colgate was born on the 25th of January in 1783, a long, long time ago. And in 1795, when William was 12, then something happened in his family. They moved from England to the middle of the United States of America. And of course, this was around the time of the Civil War. And William Colgate's father, he was an individual who had very strong views about the Civil War. Uh, he called it the War of Northern Aggression, and we believe that is correct. And of course, they emigrated then, leaving England to go to the United States of America. Now, around this time, William had become a Christian. He had put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And when they got to America, the family, well, they were farmers. So they continued in the tradition of farming. But also as a wee sideline, they started to experiment with soap because they had clothes that they had to wash and they had to wash their bodies. And they wanted to sell this soap to make some additional money to supplement the farm income to the population that was all around the Midwest. But at that time, the population in the Midwest was very sparse. And a lot of people, of course, they made their own soap or they done without. Or they used soap very, very sparingly. So in the round the time of when William was 19 years of age, he decided that he was going to go off to New York. And he told his mummy, I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to become an apprentice soap maker and I'm going to try and see if I can't relaunch this business of soap making in New York because there's a big population of people in New York. Now, this is the advice that the mummy gave to him. Listen to these words, boys and girls, young people. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there should not be room enough to receive it. And that was the advice that mummy gave him before he left in 1804 to set off for New York. Now, just before he set off, William read another portion of Scripture. And this was the portion of Scripture. Genesis chapter 28. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, verse 20, listen to these words, if God will be with me, and will keep me in the way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, 
I will surely give a tenth unto thee. And William Colgate set off for New York with this ambition to become an apprentice soap maker and to uh, sell soap to the people of New York. And this verse, Malachi 3 and 10, was in his mind. And also this passage, Jacob's vow, he said, is going to be my vow. And if God prospers my way, I'll give a tenth of all that I earn to God. So, so he arrived in New York and he got employment as an apprentice soap maker for a couple of years. And his first wages was one dollar, be the equivalent to one pound. All right. And what's a tenth of one pound? Well, it's 10p. So he tithed 10 cents out of his first pay packet, which was $1, to the Lord's work. He went to church the next Sunday, found an, an evangelical church, and he gave in 10 cents in the offering. Now, I have to tell you something else that I should have told you. Whenever he left the Midlands of America, of course, the, the Wild West wasn't really open, he had to travel by boat to New York. And whenever he was on the boat, he met the captain. And the captain was a Christian. And they had a very strange conversation. And of course, he told the captain what he was going to do in New York. And this is what the captain said. Listen to me carefully. Be a good man. Give your heart and life to Christ. Give God all that belongs to him. Make an honest soap boy. And God will prosper you. In 1806, after two years as an apprentice, William Colgate set up the Colgate Palmolive Company. He married a lady called Mary Gilbert. They had three children, Samuel, Robert, and James. And the company was set up in Dutch Street. And he set out to conquer the world's cometic market. And today the Colgate factory employs 37,000 people, different parts of the world, and they not only produce toothpaste and mouthwash, but many other products for buy. Now, in the course of this company, William's first salary, remember, $1.10. Well, eventually, as God prospered him, he started not only giving a tenth, but he gave 20% of all that he earned, and then 30%, and then 40%, and he ended up, before he died, he ended up giving 50% of all that he had to the Lord. He died on the 25th of March, 1857, and he left the legacy, the Colgate Pamolov Company that he founded in 1806. And how did it all start, young people? When he became a Christian and he trusted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And he received pardon from God and he knew all his sins were forgiven. And he entered into a partnership with God. If thou will be with me and prosper in my way, then I will do this. And he kept his vow. What he said to God he would do, he did. And he tithed. You think of this man who trusted in Christ. This man who had a good testimony called William Colgate. And this man who tithed, starting with the 10 cents or the 10p, unto the Lord. And I think he's left a great example. And I asked you young people to think about the Lord and ask yourself, 
Am I trusting in Christ? Have I got a testimony to a saving and keeping power? And if I'm trusting in him and living for him the way I should, then do I tithe even my meager income, whether it be pocket money or, or, or money that you uh, earn as a young teenager working somewhere? Do you set that aside and say, that's the Lord. The Lord's helping me to earn that. And I'm giving back a portion to him. Start with the tithe. That's the least. And that's what William Colgate's story really teaches us. We could say many other things, but we'll leave it there for today. Now, my text this morning is taken from Genesis chapter 50 and the verse 17. And it says this, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. Now I want to link up this verse, Genesis 50 verse 17, with what we read in Genesis chapter 42 verses 21 to 24, and we'll turn to it in a little moment. My theme today I've simply entitled, The Evidence of a True Spirit of Forgiveness. Now Genesis 50 verse 17 were words that were sent to Joseph and then later addressed to him by his own brothers after the death and burial of Jacob, their father. Remember, 17 years earlier, the whole family, including Jacob, were reunited in the land of Egypt. And 17 years on, the subject of forgiveness and the evil that the brothers had done to Joseph was still in the hearts and minds of Joseph's brothers. So after the father's death, they sent a messenger. Our father said, and then they came in person, the Bible tells us, and they bowed down before him. And this is what they said in verse 18. Behold, we be thy servants. In other words, we're slaves. You do with us. Treat us how you want. And what did Joseph say? Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now therefore fear ye not. I will nourish you. And your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. I want us to think this morning of this subject. The evidence of a true spirit of forgiveness. Now I want you to think first of all of experiencing a true spirit of forgiveness. So this will be our first point. There are 95 references in the Bible to the word forgive. And here's the first recorded word in the whole of Scripture. Verse 17, forgive, I pray thee now the trespass of thy brethren. It's mentioned twice in this particular verse. It's not interesting. Only one verse in the whole of Genesis, the book of beginnings, 
And it, it has two references to the word forgive. And both of these references about forgiving and forgiveness has to do with the life and times of Joseph. You see, I believe this morning that Joseph exercised a true spirit of forgiveness. Now, let me say this. Exercising a true spirit of forgiveness is not easy. It's not a light thing. It's certainly not something done in a foolish, silly manner. You see, it's not easy to ask to be forgiven of some sin. So you come to some individual, you have wronged them, and you're asking that person, will you please forgive me? And equally, it's not easy to forgive some sin that's been committed against you. That's what I'm saying. It's not a foolhardy thing. It's not a light thing. It's not just an easy thing. You see, I suspect this morning that it was hard for Joseph to forgive his brothers. Now, you think of their deep-seated hatred of him and the cruel treatment meted out to him. They knew that he was their father's favorite son. If you turn back there to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 37, and look with me at verse 4, it says this, Now when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. And then add into this scenario the impact of Joseph's dreams that he had upon them. Dreams when he gave them to them in those early days. Remember, he's a lad in around 15, 16, 17. It suggested preeminence over there. Joseph, remember, was the 11th child born. He's not the first. And preeminence over the whole family. Even the family, mummy and daddy included, it's going to bow down to, to Joseph. And he tells them this, how one day they'll bow down to him, even his father and mother. And you add in, of course, the presenting of the coat of many colors and how it uh, implied superiority or, or dominance over them. And that resentment grew. That hatred grew in their hearts. Look at verse 8, Genesis 37, verse 8. And his brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. You think of that word hatred or hated. They were treating him as an enemy. They were treating him as a foe. They treated him as the most despicable, odious person that they could imagine. And that hatred and resentment in their heart and minds grew to the thoughts developing, we need to get rid of him. Look at chapter 37, verse 18. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, verse 19, Genesis 37, Behold, this dreamer cometh. 
Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit, and we will say some evil beast have devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. You see, whenever he came to Dothan, and they seen him in the distance, they conspired to slay him. And once they came, can you just imagine ten brothers laying hold of their brother? They stripped him of the robe. I'm sure maybe they thumped him a few times as well. And they put him into a pit. And they only put him into a pit and didn't slay him because of Reuben's protest against their action. And Reuben's plan to get him out of that pit and back to his father as soon as he could. The brothers sit down to eat and drink. They're indifferent to his sorrow, his tears, his awful cries. You could hear that heart-rending cry from out of the pit. Did the brothers care? No. And once Reuben was away from the camp for a time, then the other brothers agree, because in Providence a bunch of Ishmaelite traders are coming past, and they sell their brother for 20 pieces of silver. I have no doubt they divided that um, silver among themselves. That was two pence each. They had little thought of their brother. They had, I believe, little thought of their father at home. Remember their tale of lies? Presenting the coat? Faking mourning? Saying, look, we, we found this in the way and look, look it's bloodstained. Some, some terrible wild beast must have done this. Father's heartbroken. You, you can see the impact that it has had. He, he's going to go to the grave in, in a flood of tears. And they were telling lies. Joseph remembered had been sold as a slave. He'd been lied against. Whenever he was in the house of Potiphar, he was lied against again. And he was put into prison. He enters a lad of Egypt about 17. And the Bible tells us he was 30 years of age when he stood before Pharaoh, having interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. And it was at that time Pharaoh, remember, appointed him as the prime minister, the, seven, the, the second in command. And then, of course, there was the seven years of plenty, and how a fifth of the grain was stored in various places throughout the land of Egypt, all under Joseph's command. And then there was the seven years of famine. You think of the famine beginning to bite in the land of Egypt, but also in other lands. Look with me at Genesis chapter 42, and let's read the verse 1. It says this, Genesis 42 and verse 1. Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do you look one upon another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence that we may live and not die. Verse 3, And Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt. Now, now let's get this picture. Jacob heard there's corn in Egypt. And the minute he mentioned the word Egypt, look at what it says in verse 42, chapter 42, verse 1. Why do you look one upon another? You see, the very word Egypt stirs up the brothers. They're looking at each other in their face, and their very face and countenance changed. Why? Because the word Egypt stirred up all that they did to their brother Joseph. 
And you say, I confess to you something. I, I think this is true. It was hard for Joseph to forgive such great sin. And remember, natural man is unable to forgive such great sin. Natural man is normally unwilling to forgive such great sin. Natural man is incapable of displaying such a true spirit of forgiveness by himself. So exercising true forgiveness is not easy. You see, a true child of God, that, that's a person who's a spiritual man or woman, born again of the Holy Spirit, who's been truly forgiven of all their sin by God. That truly forgiven man or woman will also, not because he's a natural man, because he's a spiritual man now, will also be a truly forgiven person. Turn over there to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12. Matthew 6 and verse 12. Listen to the word of God. Here's part of the Lord's prayer as we call it. We could call it equally the disciples' prayer. Matthew 6 and 12. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And of course the Lord Jesus expanded on it. Verse 14, Matthew 6. But if ye will forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Sorry, let me read that again. Matthew 6, verse 14. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Verse 15. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. A truly forgiven man of all his sins will be a truly forgiven person. You see, we are commanded to be forgiving. Remember in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter uh, 4 and verse 32, it says this, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. How? Even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven ye. You see, it's difficult to pray the Lord's Prayer unless we possess a truly forgiving spirit. But you could argue, well, this person has wronged me. You'd be right. You could argue, but I've been hurt and upset. That's right. You could argue, but their treatment of me has had an impact upon me greatly. That They have said and done very cruel things. You can carry that hurt. You could nurse that hurt. But even as a Christian, you could be unwilling to forgive and unwilling to forget. And if you do, you'd be harboring a forgiving spirit. I've asked myself this week, is the blessing of the Lord, the manifestation of his presence and power, a true spirit of revival being held off in part due to an unforgiving spirit within the church of Jesus Christ. You see, this would be a great tragedy because if we're truly forgiven of all our many sins, then we should have a spirit of forgiveness to forgive others their sins. That's the teaching of the Lord's Prayer. Remember, Peter asked the question, Matthew 18, how oft shall, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times. That's what the Jews taught. 
That was the teaching of the Pharisees. What did Jesus say? Matthew 18, 21. Peter, not seven times, but until 70 times seven. So if you multiply that, that's 490. Now that's an exact number. So did that mean when the person had committed their 491st sin against you, you, you refused to forgive them? No, it doesn't mean that. What it means is this. In principle, keep on forgiving till you lose count. And what did Jesus go on to tell the people? The parable of accounts. Matthew 18, the man that owed the 10,000 talents. The young people, 10,000 talents was a lot of money in biblical times. One talent was worth 6,000 denarii. 6,000 pennies. You see, in biblical times, a man got one denarii for one day's wages. So one talent equaled 6,000 working days. And this man owed the Lord 10,000 talents. That's 60 million days' wages, 60 million denarii. If we illustrate it, a man works six days per week, 50 weeks of the year. What's his wages in biblical times? 300 denarii. He would have to work 20 years of labor to pay off 6,000 denarii. And that would just be one talent. What about the other 999? You see, if we apply it in today's terms, you see that 10,000 talents? It would be a debt of about four billion pounds. Imagine somebody coming and saying, excuse me, we word, you owe me four billion pounds and I would like to know when and how you're going to pay it back. That's a very high figure. And what did this man do? But he cried to the Lord. And he appealed for mercy. And according to Matthew 18, verse 27, the, the, the debt was forgiven. If I asked the question this morning, it's this. How much do we owe to God for the multitudinous of our sins? That we have sinned against him. Think of all our sins of thought, word, and deed. Remember, we're depraved in every area and faculty of our being. Will is depraved totally. The understanding's darkened. We've no fear, thought, or regard for God or his ways, his word. We, we, our, our, our affections are diseased, completely and totally diseased because of sin. We, we sin in every part. You see, I believe in the doctrine of the total depravity of the sinner. I also believe in the doctrine of the total inability of the sinner to save himself. If I hold up the glass of water here, fill it up, and put one drop of poison in it, which portion of the glass of water are you going to drink? One sip? If we pour half of it out, would you still drink it? Do, do you see the point? One drop of poison affects the whole glass. And man, in the totality of his nature, is affected by sin. And in the parable of accounts, the king gave, forgave that huge amount. You see, the forgiveness of our debt of sin is a promise that God makes to us. A promise on the ground of the shed blood and finished work of Christ. 
And he makes the promise, and thy sins and iniquity I'll remember no more. Hebrews 10 and 17. That's what forgiveness is. Could you think of that? This king saying to this man with the debt, your debt is forgiven. I have no more remembrance of it. Go, you're free. Well, God makes us a promise on the ground of the shed blood. And your sins and iniquities I remember no more. It's a promise to lay hold of. I've got God's promise of forgiveness of sins. Have you? Now, the man in the parable, there was a few people owed him money. And what did they owe him? They owed him a hundred pence. That was like a hundred pennies. That was four months' wages. And what does he go? He, he goes to his debtors and seizes hold of them. Pay me what you owe. We can't pay. Give us time. They appealed for mercy. He refused. He put them in prison. He called the bailiffs. Let's sell what they have till I get my hundred pounds back. When the Lord heard about it, he sent for him. And according to Matthew 18, verses 33 and 34, the Lord called him a wicked man. And he was put in jail. Now, what's the point of the parable? A man is forgiven much. And yet that very same man refuses to forgive the sins of others. And that's the point of the parable. It shows the nature of his non-spirituality. And oh, how many carry around hurts in their head and in their hearts. Real hurts. Grievous hurts. And they go to bed with them and they wake up with them. And the hurts are always there. And they talk about them to others. And you know the sad thing is some people, even church leaders, ministers, pastors, elders, don't want to know them. And that individual is left in a spiritual wilderness finding it difficult and hard. Hard to read the Bible, hard to pray, hard to come to church, hard to worship. They try not to be upset. But the reality is, they are. And what do they do? And I've said to some, you've got to pray. You've got to say, Lord, help me. You've got to realize something that's important. If you're truly forgiven of the massive debt of your sin by God, then you've got to learn to forgive the sins of others and not be overcome with a root of bitterness, even towards those individuals that have wronged you. Even if they don't repent, Don't be overcome with a spirit of bitterness against them. Pray for them that the Lord will have mercy on them and the Lord will show them their sin. You'd aim and you desire as a Christian, if you're truly forgiven of all your sin, you've got this promise from God, your sins and iniquities I'll remember no more, then you desire to have a truly forgiven spirit. Remember, you can't pray the Lord's Prayer if you've not got a true spirit of forgiveness. The exercising. Of a true spirit of forgiveness. I want you to think also. Go back to the story of Joseph. The evidence. Of a true spirit of forgiveness. If you look at Genesis 50 verse 17. It says. And Joseph wept. Now if you turn to Genesis 42. In verse 24 we read. And he turned himself about from them. And wept. Now we'll pause there. You see those tears? I believe those tears were evidence of how deeply Joseph felt 
towards his wicked, evil brothers. In his heart of hearts, he really loved them. And in his heart of hearts, he wanted to display to them a true spirit of forgiveness. And the tears were evidence of his love and his spirit of forgiveness. What's the first thing that happened here is this display of forgiveness is shown to them through tears. First of all, there was a remembrance of their sin. They became aware of their sin. Genesis 20, 42 verse 1. And when, now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look one upon another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there's corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence that we may live and not die. Corn in Egypt. The very word Egypt coming into their ears about 20 or 22 years after they sold Joseph as a slave into that very place, the moment they heard the father say Egypt, corn in Egypt, they were disturbed. Their facial expression changed. Their countenance fell. He asked, he asked them, why are you looking one upon another? You look dismayed. You look upset. You look sad. You see, the whole countenance and conscience had been wakened by one word. See, they, they got away with their sin for 20 years. They felt they were okay. 20 years had passed. They had overlooked their sin. They had forgotten. They had got on with living life and loving their father and trying to be as helpful as they could. But God never overlooked their sin. You see, God is not mocked whatsoever a man soweth that shall he also reap. The law of the harvest. And God has a way of uncovering sin. Men try to keep sin buried and keep it a secret. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out even after 20 years. That's, that's a biblical principle, young people. Be sure your sin will find you out. Oh, it mightn't find you out today, tomorrow, but it could be later in life. Your conscience become awakened even through one word. That's what happened to these 10 brothers. Let me illustrate I'm using an illustration that was given by Pastor Dennis Lyle. On a Saturday morning, a letter arrives at a house. There's no address in the front, but there's a name in the back and an address. It happens to be the name of a certain boy's mother, and it's their home address. The mother's away shopping. Daddy's there. The boys think, well, it's, it's obvious it's a letter for mummy. They weren't thinking of the lack of address in the front of the letter. But they showed it to the father. And the father, of course, opened the letter. Now, maybe he shouldn't, but he opened the letter. And it was a letter from their mummy, his wife, to an old friend. And there it was in black and white. An account of mummy's infidelity and unfaithfulness to daddy before they get married and even after they get married. Did that woman intend for that information to come into the eyes and ears of her husband and her children in that way? No. She had meant to put the address in the front to send to her friend, but she forgot. And put her own name, her own address at the back. Returned to sender, and the royal mail very kindly returned it. And this devastating story unfolded. See, God was getting ready to expose the sin of Jacob's boys. And for 20 years it lay hidden in Moor. 
And God was dealing with them. They had long forgotten their sin, but Lord was at work. And he was going to reconcile Jacob and Joseph. He was going to bring the family together and restore the years that the uh, fellowship had been lost and broken. Restore a life of fellowship to the Lord. And the first very thing was this, to make them aware of their sin. And it was the voice of conscience. They suddenly remembered their wrongdoing. Let me ask this question. Is there something in your life that you need to remember? Some wrong you've done? Maybe an individual you've cheated? Somebody you've defrauded? A business deal gone south or sour? Something you've said? Something you've done? Something that ought not to be done? And you've been concealing sin all along? You're thinking it's okay? And yet Proverbs 28 and 18 says, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall find mercy. And how many people today in Northern Ireland are struggling with guilt? And it's guilt over some past sin. And it's affecting them physically. They're nervous individuals. They've got ulcers. They've got headaches. They have other physical problems. It's not what happened to David. Psalm 32. How that he was physically affected because he was in a backslidden state and had sinned with Bathsheba for, for, for 11 months. It impacted upon him physically. It affected him mentally. It affected him spiritually. And, and he was in that state. And if you asked against whom did David sin? We sinned against Bathsheba, sinned against her husband Uriah the Hittite. He sinned against his kingdom and his court. He sinned against the country, but ultimately he had to come to this confession against thee. Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Not only is there remembrance of sin, but there, there's a remorse for sin. I want you to think of this before we finish. Ten boys arrive in Egypt to buy corn. And what happens? Instantly, Joseph recognizes them. In the providence of God, they're brought face to face with the prime minister of Egypt. Ten boys that had dealt cruelly with them, harshly with them. And what do we read? Well, if we look at Genesis chapter 42, verses 5 right through to 14, you'll discover something interesting. Joseph had a conversation with them. It says in verse 7, And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them, and spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And it says in verse 8, And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew him not. So they enter into a conversation. Joseph accuses them of being spies. You've come to spy out the famine in the land of Egypt. And they start arguing. No, we're, we're part of a family of 12. One's at home, Benjamin, the youngest, and one is not. See, they didn't know what happened to Joseph. They just said one is not. They didn't tell what we, we had done to him. Remember what happened in Dothan? They accused him. They imprisoned him in the pit. And now Joseph's about to do the same to them. You see, he's got a plan. That's why he spoke roughly. To see if they're full of remorse. To see if they're truly sorry. To see if they have a sense of their own sin. He entered into conversation and he says, Now, I'll tell you what. If you've got a younger brother called Benjamin, then you'll not see my face until your youngest brother comes. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you all in prison for three days. And then we're going to send one of you 
to bring Benjamin here. If there's any truth to your story, I want you to prove to me that you're not spies. So he put them in prison for three days. Now, I don't believe Joseph was behaving badly or sinister. He wasn't out for revenge. But he had to see. He had to prove their hearts. He had to see if they were broken men. He had to see if they had come to genuine repentance. He was keen to show a true spirit of forgiveness and true love to them. But he had to make sure that they were truly penitent individuals. Could I say this morning this, that God is never reluctant or unhappy to forgive our sin? God delights in mercy. He's a great pardoning God. His heart is full of joy and true gladness. But he has to see brokenness and repentance before that promise can be made. So the boys were put into prison for three days. Genesis 42, 18 and 19. He then said, well look, one of you will remain in prison. The rest can go home and bring the younger brother. Look at chapter 42, verse 21, for time is gone. And they said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear, therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Speak I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child. And ye would not hear, therefore behold, also his blood is required. Do you see that? What were they doing? They were remorseful for their sin. They're now admitting that. We are verily guilty. We saw the distress of his soul. Now has all this come upon us. Oh, a former day, their lives were full of pride and self-importance. Now they're saying, we are verily guilty. Do, Do you get the picture? Dormant sin had been unconfessed, but now they're full of remorse. They're made to feel guilty. And the Lord used the prison to stop them in their tracks. And you know, the Lord has a way of doing that. The Lord can cause things to happen. Death of a loved one, loss of a job, particular trial. To bring to your remembrance some past sin or summer. To awaken you to sin. To bring you not only to an awareness of it, but so that you are remorseful for it. And then, of course, lastly, there's an acknowledgement of sin. There's repentance. You see, remembrance, remorse, truly sorry. And then that leads to repudiation and repentance. Can you think of how these boys got back home and discovered the money in their sacks? Then eventually they come again, they bring Benjamin. Let me just share this with you and then we'll finish. He invites them to their home. You think of the brothers coming into Jacob or Joseph's home in Egypt. And the the seating arrangements is an exact order of birth. How does this man know he's not supposed to know? The oldest to the youngest, the exact order of birth. Seating ten people according to their birth. How did he know? God was at work. And then, of course, the money back in their sacks again. And then, remember the stolen cup, the stolen silver cup from the table. The brothers saying, let the man whose sack it is be put to death. Nobody stole the cup. Then where was it found? Benjamin's sack. They rent their clothes. They cried. They they thought, we're not going to face going home to our father. Before, they didn't care about the father. Now they do. They offer themselves as 
Joseph's servants. No jealousy shown whenever Joseph showed Benjamin and gave more gifts to Benjamin than he did to them. You see, they were broken. And here's another evidence of their broken. Judah offered himself for Benjamin in his stead. My Lord, I will take his place. Treat me as a slave. Put me in prison. Kill me instead. You see, the men were changed. You see, there's evidence of true repentance. And it all started with remorse and remembrance that led to repudiation and repentance. These were changed and broken men. And now is the time to declare and show his forgiveness to them. And the effect, I am Joseph, doth my father yet live. And he made himself known to the brothers. There's not an ounce of hatred. There's not an act of revenge. There's no rancor. He freely bestows forgiveness on them. Gives them the land of Goshen. Brings his father down. The gifts, the wagons. You see, who are we? We're great sinners. And we need great forgiveness. For the multitudinous of our sin. And we need to be aware of sin. And then there has to be an admission of that sin. And then more than that. There has to be an acknowledgement of that sin. In order for true forgiveness. To be given. May the Lord take these few thoughts this morning. Our time is gone. We'll have to leave it there. We'll return to this subject some other time in the will of God very soon.